Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Gordon S. and Cindy W. Joining us on the show today is new guest, Kirk Duplessis. Kirk is founder and head trader at Option Alpha, an online options education and trading service focused on various options strategies. You can learn more about Option Alpha via their website, optionalpha.com. Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. For the audience, tell us about your background and then also why you decided to set up an options trading service. Yeah. So first, I, I did not decide on setting up the options trading service right out of the gate. So it was very much an organic thing that happened. But my background, I guess, is I would suggest it's pretty atypical in finance uh, for the most part. I went to University of Virginia, got a finance degree. At the time that I was going there, everybody, and when I say everybody, it, I, I literally mean everybody was going to New York and working on Wall Street or, you know, either an investment bank, a private equity shop, you know, like that, that's what you did. And, and I truly didn't know any better. And so I decided, oh, well, okay, I'll go and do some interviews and got some offers, ended up working at Deutsche Bank in mergers and acquisitions, which was great and terrible at the same time. Like I loved the world of finance still do obviously, but I hated the job and the hours and the lifestyle that was surrounding that. So I left investment banking and M&A and decided to be a research analyst. So I moved from New York to DC where I'm originally from and kind of like grew up and worked for BB&T Capital Markets, which is kind of a regional bank. They were starting a research arm and I worked with two other guys to do REIT research and really enjoyed REITs, enjoyed the, the research side of it, talking with CEOs, CFOs, trying to understand businesses in depth and, um, and you know, write up research on them and their industries and, and had a really good time doing that. Ultimately, what I learned in that experience too was that, you know, a lot of this stuff is highly skewed towards the end goal of the bank or the outcome of, you know, the shop that you're working for. And I just, you know, again, just never felt like it was a, a good long-term fit. So uh, it was very much a stepping stone for me. And during this time, I decided to start entertaining the idea of trading options. Um, I've always been very passionate about reducing volatility in my finances and life. Um, growing up, my parents were great and I love my parents to death. And uh, But they seemed to always either have money or did not have money. And it was one extreme or the other. And so growing up, it was very financially volatile time for me and my sister all the time, you know? And so I've always had this idea that I want to reduce volatility as much as possible. So I started looking at trading. I started, I tried day trading. I ended up being terrible at that. I tried Forex trading, ended up being terrible at that. I babysat trades all night. Um, just never really found my groove until I finally got to options and, and figured out that, you know, it was more of a mathematical game than a uh, than a game on predicting chart patterns and candlesticks and things like that, which which I ultimately don't think I'm really good at. Um, I think I'm much better on the math and expectancy type finance and investing. So 
So that's where I ended. And the long story short on Option Alpha is we've been running it for about 10 years in one form or another, a little over 10 years. And ultimately, um, it was a very small blog on Google, and I was just chronicling my notes and my thoughts and my ideas and trying to keep myself sane as I was starting on this journey. And people started asking questions. I did not like to answer questions via email that were the same questions over and over. So I'd create a video and then eventually the videos needed to be organized into courses. And here we are now and we've got a ton of free education and courses and we're trying to help out as many people as we can and give away as much information as we can for free. Do you have a view on the broad market direction, Kirk, when you look out at the market today and what's going on with government intervention into much of the markets globally, does a macro view matter to you or is it about only each trade? I would think that you have to have a healthy dose of your head above water. I've often found that what I think is happening or what should be happening in the markets based on the macro indicators, right? never really actually happens. Like even just the last couple of months, we've had this massive rally off of the bottom and nobody expected this coming. Like I, I thought, okay, dead cat bounce, we get a little bit of a retracement, you know, just a little bit of bottom feeding, but clearly did not expect that we would go this far this fast. And everyone's scratching their head because they're thinking to themselves, well, unemployment's still high, lots of people are out of work, people are filing bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, like this doesn't make sense. And and that's what I've generally found is that the economy and the macro view doesn't always jive with the market in whatever time, whatever shorter time period you're looking at. But I do believe that over time, the things that start to like the seeds that start to sow now eventually have to have to come up. And so, you know, I look at this, the Fed throwing not only the kitchen sink, but the whole kitchen at the market and saying, we'll do whatever we want to do, you know, money printing wise that's going to have to be unwound at some point. And so, you know, how that becomes unwound, I, I don't know, or how long, you know, I mean, from the last crash in 2008, they, they were able to kick the can pretty far down the road, you know, to this point. Um, and I would say like bearing the pandemic, you know, crisis that we had, they could have continued, you know, even further and longer. So I don't know how long it'll last, but I feel like at some point these macro money printing, government intervention, programs, cheap corporate debt, like those things are going to eventually come home to roost. And and where they show their heads, I think, is is anybody's guess. Yeah, good points. And I agree a lot with what you're saying there. We'll talk about a little bit volatility we've seen uh, in the last few months and the hit the bid event that occurred in March during the initial COVID panic. And what lessons should traders and investors both take away from this recent experience? Well, I think the major lesson is, and we've been harping on this for the last couple of years, you know, just knowing that something like this was eventually going to happen because it's happened multiple times. So it's it's not something that's a, you know, if it's going to happen, it's a when type of event. But what everyone is basing, and, and to a certain extent, this is, you know, directed towards option pricing models, but every central bank uses the same, you know, general thought process and theory. And that's, that we have these normal distributions of returns over time and we have you know this bell curve shaped distribution and a lot of models are based on that a lot of pricing models a lot of distribution a lot of the stress testing models are based on that and the end result is that those models are are broken and it's been proven you know countless times and going back you know 20 30 years but it's been proven that these models are broken 
in the sense that we have very extreme market events, black swans, that manifest themselves more often than people expect. And the severity in which those black swan events move the markets, the magnitude in which they move the markets, are much greater than people expect. And so what we saw in March of this year was no different. It was just a different catalyst that that occurred. But we saw a massive volatility event, you know, much greater than people expected and a bigger magnitude. And I think what people have to take out of this personally is that we get into these modes where we have lots of volatility clustering. And so that can be a dangerous time to try to reorganize your portfolio because things are moving so fast. And so volatility clustering is just this idea that markets are gonna move very fast, very rapidly in a sequential fashion, you know, day by day. We saw this in March and, and April's, or, you know, February, March, this idea that the markets were down 5%, 5%, 3%, right? That should never really happen in a regular, normal model, normal market that people base pricing off of. And so the fact that we had that means that you really couldn't adjust your portfolio that quickly. Lots of things were illiquid. The bid-ask spreads were insanely wide. So what I took away from that, once again, going through you know another black swan event, is you've got to be positioned heading into the event because when it happens, you've got almost no time to react. Um, and I think that if people had that thought process hitting, heading into it, I think a lot of people would have been either better off um, or for the next one that will eventually happen, they'll be more prepared because you don't know when it's going to happen. And when it does, you're not going to have time to adjust and there may not, may not even be enough liquidity to adjust at decent prices. Uh, so that's why I took out of it. So let me just interject cash into this conversation. Speak to cash importance during these types of situations and how should people like you said, in advance, how should they approach cash and, and how important to you was cash during this sell-off? Well, cash to me has a bunch of bunch of value, not because cash is just money, but cash gives you optionality in many different aspects. The other thing that I'll note just quickly about cash is that, and, and specifically how it relates to options trading is that when you're using a leverage product, whether it's options or futures or whatever, you're using a leverage product, you actually don't need to. And, and our research would highly suggest that using your full account balance or anything really close to your full account balance is suboptimal. So in options trading, we kind of find that generally portfolios that allocate around 30 to 40% of their capital and actually leave a, the vast majority in cash perform better than those portfolios that allocate 50, 60, 80% of their capital towards a leverage strategy. And it makes sense in, in a lot of ways why that happens because of sequencing risk and returns and drawdowns, et cetera. So that's the first thing is that statistically, you're probably better off to have a lot, a, a decent portion of your portfolio in cash. When you get into these volatility environments, the need to adjust positions and cover risk or just to withstand the blow becomes critical because if you have to get out of a position and it's a position that you don't want to get out of, that really actually potentially maybe not even is moving against you, but you need to free up capital. Now you're on defense and now you basically have to take what the market gives you. And so cash in those environments, I think gives you a ton of optionality to not only go after new positions, but also to adjust and defend existing positions that are sound, that just maybe for the time look a little off, right? That the pricing is off, the underlying is off. It's not moving the way that it should, right? Just lots of volatility. And so 
I think you need a little bit of a cushion in order to defend against those environments. The other thing I would look at is like you look at every major investor heading into that, you know, the Buffets, the Dalios, you know, all, all of them, they all had a major cash position, right? And so there's clearly value in, in keeping cash and, and sticking in it into a cash position. Yes, and I think that was very well highlighted during this sell-off. Certainly, I agree with having a, a large balance. If you can put it together, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think that people who had that had tremendous opportunity uh, during that time. And personally, I wish I had more, had a good amount, but I wish I had a lot more because there was some fantastic opportunities that came across during that time, some of which I was able to take advantage of. Well, over your past experience, Kirk, with trading options, what have you learned through trial and error and how has your strategy been refined to a few effective option strategies? I mean, I think you could say that my strategy has definitely evolved as it should. I used to be a lot more selective in trades. Um, I used to trade less often and to my own detriment, that was because I was trying to go after the most highly optimized the best possible opportunities. And and I had to be at that point because I was working my account balance up and I was starting you know, with less capital. I think that that was the wrong approach ultimately because as we did more research and we continue to do hundreds of millions of you know, back-tested studies and trades and you know, really kind of dig into options trading like nobody else, what I've learned over time is that the level of consistency and activity generally will trump and beat somebody who is very tries to be very selective and very picky and tries to optimize because what we find is that when you have a high level of consistency and activity in your trading the optimal trades get normalized with the things that are you know potentially suboptimal and you generally find yourself in a better overall position with less volatility and you know smoother pnl curves etc so the first thing that I've learned is just to be a little bit more active and not be so picky with everything, right? Um, I think you could call this, you know, to some degree, this is like the shift that I had was very similar to how Buffett had shifted from, you know, the cigar butt strategy to more of the, you know, uh, high value, really great business model investing, right? You may have to pay a little bit more money for those companies. It may take a little bit more time, but ultimately it's a better ride. And, and I found the same in the world of options trading is not trying to trade so targeted and so you know infrequent and just becoming more frequent and not worrying as much about you know every little thing and just trying to have a high level of consistency. The second thing that I've learned through not only research but then lots of trial and error is just to have an overwhelming amount of patience for, for things to work out. This is... Uh, continues to be a struggle, I think, for a lot of people, especially for me, is we have this need to adjust and fidget with things. Like we have this desire that if something is not working, then it has to be wrong, right? And so we go out of our way to avoid the pain of a losing trade or a losing month or a series of losing trades. And we try to adjust and tinker with something that ultimately just doesn't need to be messed with. And I think that learning the value of patience and potentially some of the best trades that I've had have been trades where I just frankly sit on my hands and wait for things to calm down. And that's been really hard, but ultimately has been some of the best trading experiences I've had are times where I just sit back and I become patient for two weeks and, you know, let things evolve. Um, so that's what I've learned, you know, psychologically and mechanically. 
On the options trading side, you know, we've learned a lot through research. We know that selling options is is a good core strategy, depending on how, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do it. You can do it with straddles and strangles and iron butterflies and iron condors. I mean, those are all selling strategies. Where I think you you get into trouble with those strategies is the overallocation, the not protecting against the tail risk, you know, the big black swan events that happen that are not priced into options. And so, you know, it, it's been not only see, we've seen it numerous times in case studies, but where companies and services have blown up because of the tail risk, but we also see it, you know, just in single markets where, you know, gold goes through the moon or bonds, you know, drop or natural gas has a 10% move. We know that these black swan events are going to happen. So as a, a core option seller, you should be, you should be aware of those. And maybe you should actually sprinkle in some option buying strategies as a way to protect against that. So, so I've learned kind of this idea of having this duality in options trading where it doesn't have to be so one-sided all the time. You can be an option seller and an option buyer selectively. You don't have to always say, yes, I've got to be an option seller. No, I have to be an option buyer. Um, I think that, you know, doing that is, is detrimental to your success. Agreed. You brought up a lot of good points and I want to touch on a couple of those in a moment, but can you walk the audience through how you go about analyzing and selecting an options trade for your members? So for me, it's actually a pretty easy process. You know, it used to be a very, you know, selective, subjective process where I would look at different sectors and industries and I would see what chart patterns look good or, you know, make subjective decisions, you know, based on imperfect information uh, is really what it would come down to. And I look at that as more of a, you know, painting a, a painting a portfolio, right? Like there's actually no rhyme or rhythm to it. I'm just kind of slapping things on the table. And what I've gravitated towards over the last couple of years is more of a mechanical, uh, risk-based, data-based approach. So that starts with the tickers that we select. You know, we have a core list of ETFs and sectors that we trade. We really don't deviate off of that list. And that list is not just some arbitrary list. We did a lot of research to see what industries and sectors are the most uncorrelated to one another outside of black swan events because in black swan events everything's correlated to one another so outside of black swan events what are the things that are most uncorrelated to one another great we build that list now we start saying okay what are the strategies that we can trade among this core list of tickers that you know ultimately in five or ten years are going to have a positive expected outcome it may not happen right away it may happen right away and then go through a drawdown but what are the core strategies that we want to trade and from there, it's really actually a very simple mechanical process that we follow every single week. You know, we kind of work down our list, we enter a series of trades, then we go back around the next week, enter another series of trades and the same, you know, tickers. What's funny is that people often come in and they're like, Kirk, you know, after two weeks, they're like, I, I kind of get it after two weeks, you know, like I'm ready to go do this on my own because it, it's actually pretty boring. Like I go and I do videos and I say, okay, well, Today we're trading the same thing that we traded, you know, four days ago because this is what we need to trade, right? And, you know, it's that kind of documenting that mechanical process of you, you go to the gym every day because you go to the gym every day, right? And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. So, so our process is is pretty, you know, rigid right now, um, pretty firm in what we what we trade, underlying wise strategies we use and the mechanics that we kind of follow. Um, and then from there, I think it's a little bit of portfolio balancing and and keeping your head above water, you know, watching out for the big macro trends. 
give us an example, maybe a recent trade that uh, that you can speak to that's not giving away too much information, but can you just speak to maybe one of those tickers, what you saw and what you recommended? Yeah, well, one, I'm not afraid of like giving out away too much information for the trades. We do a lot of option selling strategies that are risk defined around 60 days and around 40 days. And for whatever reason, what we found in a lot of research is actually that 20 days uh, to expiration and 50 days to expiration, although generally profitable, are not as profitable as if you were to sell, start your selling strategy around 60 or 40 days. I have no idea why. There's, there's I can't think of a reason. Maybe just 50 days is slightly too far and 20 days is slightly too close and 40 and 60 ended up being pretty well. So what we do is we generally use an option selling strategy that's risk defined. Right now I love iron butterflies. So I would sell an iron butterfly on uh, TLT or GLD or SPY, EEM, FXI. And I just continue to sell a small set of those every couple days. So my whole thought process on consistency and frequency is that I'm not special enough that I can predict when things are going to go up, down, sideways, left or right. But what I do know is that over a long period of time, I should have the ability to capture this risk premium that's embedded in option pricing. And in order for me to capture that, I have to be willing to consistently sell premium. And so what I do is if I want to take a position that's say 10 contracts, I will split that entry into maybe four or five entries of one to two contracts every couple days. So I'm not trying to just pick an arbitrary date and say every Monday I trade 10 contracts. Well, that doesn't mean anything if you only do it, you know, every couple weeks, right? Then now you become very subjective to market movement and volatility. I want to try to normalize that as much as possible. So for example, like this week, I'll sell an iron butterfly in TLT and then couple days later, I'll sell another set of contracts in TLT. And then a couple days later, I'll sell another set of contracts and always trying to target the 40 to 60 day time period. That's good. And for the audience that's not too familiar with the term iron butterfly, can you explain that? Sure. Yeah, actually, I, I should have done that to begin with. So I apologize. So iron butterfly is, to me, I look at it as a, a synthetic straddle. So what I mean by that is that we're doing a, a straddle option strategy, which is kind of the peak or the inside strikes are selling at the money strikes. So if a particular stock is trading at $100, we would sell the 100 strike call and the 100 strike put. And the idea behind that is that we're trying to maximize the credit that we're collecting for that particular strategy for the at the money option premium. So you maximize this credit as much as possible. That helps you collect a huge credit, moves your break even points out as far as you can and hopefully it takes advantage of as much of the implied volatility risk premium that's inherent. And then what we do with Iron Butterfly is because we know that these black swan events happen more often than not, right? Like we talked about, and they're, they're larger than people expect, is we protect ourselves by going far out on the wings and buying cheap options, you know, maybe 10 strikes, 15 strikes out on either end. And these might be 10 cents, they might be 15 cents in price and premium, you know, really, really cheap options that are very far out. Low likelihood of being hit, but in case they do get hit, we wanna have some protection that covers our risk. And so an iron butterfly is just selling the at the money call and put, and then going out really, really far on either end and buying a call option far out and buying a put option far out, 
only with the goal of capping your risk and trying to control risk and position size as much as you can. Excellent. Good explanation. How much of this plays into the time frames that you mentioned? You know, we had 20, 40, 50, 60 days. The options decay rate, does that play into how you guys are, are structuring these trades as far as, you know, we know that options generally decay pretty hard during those time frames? It's built into a lot of the testing and the research that we do just by design, by, by default, right? We know that when we test a strategy that sells an option at 60 days, it's going to decay at a much faster pace once it starts to get to 35, 40, 45 days, right? The rate of decay increases. And we've also tested a lot of weekly strategies where we're selling options five days out, two days out, 10 days out. What we find in those situations is that when you, and this is generally, so this is not to say that like this always happens on every strategy, but when we look at the broad data, what we find is that the weekly strategies where you do have a much faster decay of the option premium and therefore is very attractive. A lot of people love to trade the weekly strategies. When we overlay a weekly strategy that sells options every 10 days and does it four times in a row versus a single contract that is sold 40 days from expiration, right? And never rolled over and over again. So trying to match them up as much best we can, we find generally that the monthly and bi-monthly contracts work better. So I think that there's a level where you have to sell some premium heading into that, you know, kind of really fast decay in option premium, but it's gotta be far enough out to give you time to maneuver and to give the market time to to settle down and go through some cyclicality. Um, that's that's how I think about it. So so I think that we think about that, you know, it's it's in the back of our minds, but it's not the reason why we sell 40 or 60 days. It's mostly because the numbers work out better at that at that period for us. Yeah, and that's my understanding that that kind of time frame, 30 to 60 days is, is kind of the sweet spot. Let's talk a little bit about, let's go back to your example. What are you looking at as far as technical analysis? What indicators made you get into those options? Yeah, I mean, so for a lot of the ETFs that we do, it has nothing to do with technicals. Um, I think technicals are really good for, and we did a lot of research on technicals a number of years ago and published all that research. And what we generally found is that most technicals are garbage. And so we did a lot of testing on, you know, do you use an RSI? with a seven day period and buy at 10 and sell at 50 or buy at 15 and sell at thir- you know, 35. I mean, we really kind of stress tested all the parameters. And what we found is that most of them are kind of garbage. Um, the ones that actually worked better probably worked better on a little bit longer time period. And even the ones that had, let's say some parameter stability where it was you know, really stable across a lot of different asset classes, you know, you weren't getting this huge disparity in a 50-50 coin flip, right? So the best technical might have won, you know, 60, 59% of the time. You you really weren't getting this like, oh, it won 90% of the time, right? So that's the first thing. So I think that technicals, while helpful, should not be the sole, sur- sole source of your decision-making. For us, we lean on technicals very little, if at all, because most of our analysis has already been done into understanding the correlations between these underlying asset classes and pairs. So when I go to sell a strategy on TLT, it's already been premeditated. I I know exactly what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it and what sequence and cadence I'm going to use for my selling strategy. And very little will be determined based on the technicals. Now, 
That being said, I think that if you look at the technicals and you have some opinion or you look at a stock chart or you see a stock pattern or whatever you ultimately use to make your your judgment and you want to skew or you know maybe slightly tilt a strategy in one direction or another by all means like knock your socks off i'm not going to be the one to say yes you can and no you can't just understand i think that most of that stuff has a very fine line of effectiveness and so to rely completely on it uh would be would be really painful you look at what happened in march when stocks started falling off of the cliff, there was a period halfway down basically where everything had a technical buy signal. And it didn't really matter what you used or how you set up your technicals. Pretty much the entire market had a buy signal, yet it was halfway from falling. So if you just, to use the most extreme example, you went all in at that period, you probably went through a significant drawdown if you were able to survive, right? Um, So I think that's the, that's the downside to leaning on these things so, so, so much. I think they should be an arrow, right, in your in your pack, but they shouldn't be everything that you use. Understood. And that's a good point because most traders appear to be typically in an opposite direction. And I like how you've been able to establish option strategies that really technical takes a back seat. And so I think that's interesting and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the buy signal, you had a lot of pain before it actually worked out. Kirk, talk about for a moment when you do these uh, strategies and you make these recommendations, speak to your audience size. And, and is that an issue when you guys are, are making these recommendations to your members? How do you consider that fitting in when you guys make these recommendations with the size of members that you have? So the first thing is that they're not recommendations. It's just what I'm doing in my portfolio, right? And so, you know, everything that we do is is meant to be at Option Alpha, education first. All education is free. I tell people this openly because it's it's what it is. You could come into Option Alpha, use all of our education and training courses, tracks, podcasts, downloads, videos, and you would understand exactly what we're doing without any ambiguity. You could take all that and walk away and know exactly what I'm doing. People that want to just ask questions and get more access to me and kind of watch and see what I do, that's where we have, you know, these higher level memberships. And and I think that that's fair. You know, like my time is not available freely to everybody. So if you want to come in and learn by yourself, that doesn't impose on my time. But if you want to ask questions and start, you know, following what I'm doing or watching what I'm doing, then then that requires a different level. And so even though we have... 200 and I think 25,000 members at this point, you know, that are a member of the website. We don't have 225,000 people who are following what I do. And a lot of people, what they do is they come in and they watch and they learn and they, you know, use that same methodology or thought process in a different market or in a different underlying. And I tell people openly, like my portfolio and what I trade should not be what you trade. You should scale down. You should adjust your strategy. Iron butterflies are not for everyone. You might trade a straddle or a strangle, an iron condor, just a simple credit spread. A lot of people like to come in and look at our research and you know see what we do and then apply it to a different area. Like you know, I don't like to trade Tesla and Apple, but Tesla and Apple and Chipotle are some of the highest traded you know securities by retail traders right now. Um, so I think that we're kind of atypical in that sense. But I don't think we move the market by any stretch. We're just very still, very much a, a small fish in a major, major pond and ocean. So uh, I don't think we move or adjust or, or have any inter- interference in the market by any stretch. 
And speak just a little bit more to that. So with what you're doing with your portfolio and sharing that information, do you participate, you're participating in each of those sharing events alongside the members. Is that correct? So what I do with my portfolio is when I make a trade, I publish what I trade and that's what it is. So if I make a trade, I publish what it is. Somebody can come in there and they can look at that trade. And if they feel like it's a similar trade they want to make, they can make the similar trade. If they want to adjust it or if they just want to watch, they can do that. But everything that I do is the exact trades that I make in my account. So if I publish and say, look, I, I made you know a trade and I did five contracts, that's because I did five contracts and I actually filled the trade and that's what it was. I think it's a very simple way to do it. And it, you know, to me, it's helped me stay consistent because I, I have to, I feel this level of obligation to continuously share what I'm doing. And that allows me to be more consistent in my trading, whereas otherwise maybe I would have not been as consistent, you know, without this backdrop. Yeah, that sounds good. And I would point out, certainly there is a lot of overwhelming, in fact, a lot of free information on the Option Alpha website. So I encourage the audience to take a look at that and, and probably start there. And I think you'll have a lot of time cut out for that. I want to move on to just some other topics. Your thoughts on printed currencies like the US dollar, alternatives like Bitcoin, and proven preservation vehicles like gold. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> There's like four four main, you know, subjects we could probably dive into for hours. You know, first thing is, you know, my my thought process on this is obviously I'm not an expert in any of these areas. So, I consider myself to be uh, a person who watches and reads and you know observes a lot, and I'm very much enthralled by the whole situation that we're in. I think that eventually, when it comes to our printing currency as the dollar, the dollar is the reserve currency, which has given it enormous power and status for many years. But we all know that currencies actually go through major cycles of being a valued world dominant currency, and eventually the dollar will not become that. Um, and I think that, that those seeds have started to sow. And I think that really started in 2008 where you know we started to do quantitative easing. Now we have QE infinity for sure. And eventually people and worlds and banks and central banks are gonna look at that and say, you know what, maybe we don't wanna have our money in dollars. You know, Maybe it's safer in some other asset, some other currency. So, I have no doubt that eventually the dollar will not be the world dominant and reserve currency. How long that takes, I have no idea. Uh, but I think that we're, we're reaching a peak of our reserve status and our, of our domination status with, with regards to the dollar. I think that things like Bitcoin are extremely interesting to watch. You watch something that has you know, a fixed baseline you know, because there's only so many that can be done, but there's so many coins out there and all coins that have been created around this. I think it's interesting to watch. I think it's it's so small right now and yet so popular that I think it has to really prove itself as a, a base of stability before I would say anybody serious gets involved with it. So you even look at, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, it had price changes of almost instantly 5% up and then like a couple hours, 5% down. I mean, it just, or it was down and then up or whatever the case was, but the markets can be so volatile because the float and the liquidity is actually really not that big. And so I think Bitcoin is very interesting to watch. People always ask, should I have Bitcoin? And I, I think 
a, a simple answer to that could be like you could weight it in your portfolio based on its market cap to to global you know global markets, which would be very very small, you know, a one percent or less. So if you wanted to weight it to that, great. And if it grows in you know allocation and market cap, then you weight more toward it and you you kind of ride that train higher if it continues to go up. But do I think that people should have a overwhelming majority of their money in it? Of course not. Um, gold, I think, is interesting because it's always been a store of value. It's always been something that banks seem to hoard and seem to um, seem to buy up. There was reports, and I I forget what central bank it was, but I, I won't I, w- I won't try to guess. But there have been reports that I've seen where you know central banks over the last couple of years have been really kind of storing and hoarding you know gold and and precious metals. So do I do do I think that that's also a monetary baseline that you could use? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think that hard assets could also be included in there, real estate, you know, commodities, land. I mean, like, you know, a lot of people don't talk about those, but those hard assets, you know, will, will really kind of stand the test of time when inflation, uh, you know, goes bananas if it ever does. So I think you have to have a good mix of everything. I, I wouldn't say that one thing should be your sole focus. Yes, absolutely. And I think you made some good points about the hard assets being a cornerstone. Certainly, if you're looking to preserve wealth, I'm certainly a big fan of gold. I have a strong uh, position on gold and what it does for preservation purposes, not necessarily for speculation, hoping for price appreciation, but for preservation. Things like Bitcoin, I'm a little bit, the jury's still out on this side on, on things like Bitcoin. I struggle to understand the promise of not being dilutive when it's, it's just an electronic form of, of really currency. I always struggle with the non-dilutive promise that's been put out there and how that promise gets backstopped. But we'll leave that probably for another conversation because I believe, yeah, if humans are running the show, then those promises can always be broken. And we've seen those promises broken with things like the U.S. dollar um, over time, even though the initial thought behind the U.S. dollar gold-backed was a thought that held strong for quite some time before it finally broke. I want to move over to another topic your thoughts on the impacts of ETF and also computer algorithm trading on the market? Yeah, well, this is interesting because you know we're in the process of probably in the next couple of months rolling out um, an auto trading you know technology, which will really be the first of its kind for options trading. And and so I have I have lots of thoughts in this area on computer algorithm automated trading. I think that, you know, to start, because your question was about ETFs, you know, ETFs are are very interesting to me because what you find in ETFs is you find a lot of efficiencies that mutual funds just really don't have anymore. And I think that ETFs are the logical progression that the mutual fund industry was going to go through. However, we still see that a lot of people are invested in mutual funds, even though they're tax inefficient, you know, they cost a lot of money, there's ridiculous fees for most of them. So I think the progression towards ETFs will continue to improve. Uh, the flow into ETFs will continue to uh, increase over the couple, you know, you know, five, 10 years, potentially more, just waiting for people to unfortunately, like die and forget that they have mutual funds and somebody else has to make decisions. Um, so I think that eventually we're going to see more and more things flow in ETFs, which which I'm a fan of. I think that ultimately it does remove the price discovery aspect of choosing underlying stocks, right? And saying, is this a good investment or do I just close my eyes and blanket, you know, passive invest? I'm very much a believer that 
nobody's ever really passive investing anyway, because anything you passively invest in, like an index, has been selectively chosen, right? I mean, things go in and out of the S&P 500 all the time. So even if you think you're passively investing, there's an active component into it. And I worry that people who just blindly invest in ETFs or indexes do not understand that there actually needs to be price discovery. There needs to be some sort of value component that's built into that. And um, and so I think that that's, that's troubling. Uh, how that gets solved, I don't know, but, but that's where we're going. Um, when it comes to automated trading and algorithms, it's pretty clear that most of the trading, the vast majority, I've seen different stats, plus 90% is done by computers and algorithms. I think that this will eventually lead to markets that continue to be extremely volatile, continue to have wild swings in different directions, um, and continue to experience major gaps. And I think that when you look at computers competing against each other, it's going to be a really, really tough, you know, tug and pull between two massive banks that are heavily capitalized, trying to outsmart the other one. And I think that in many cases, most investors get chopped up in those situations. It's clear that robo trading and automated trading, rules-based trading, for most retail investors who try to go the subjective discretionary route, is probably a better alternative. It's one of the reasons why we're building it at Option Alpha, because as great as I think I am at making subjective, you know, non-subjective decisions, everything I do is still pretty subjective because it's me actually clicking the mouse. So if I can build in some rules-based trading strategies and some some parameters by which a strategy might trade and some you know hard data points to say never make an allocation more than this and never do a strategy that's this when my portfolio is tilted this way, I think I ultimately end up in a better position and and I remove the emotional component that unfortunately hurts a lot of retail investors like myself. There are the some dangers with these types of things, as you know, and, and ETFs and so forth. And, and you're absolutely right. They're not necessarily passive because there's a basket of underlying equities that are there. You're certainly correct to be selective when you click that mouse because it is your capital. Let's go back for just a moment and talk portfolio allocation, big picture for a moment, Kirk. I know we touched on this when we talked hard assets and other things. Speaking to the market side of that portfolio. How do you see the ideal trading and or investment portfolio? For a guy like yourself, let's say middle-aged person, what is the mix and strategy that you see as ideal? Oh, I mean, that's a really, really hard question because there's so many things that, you know, besides age that would factor into it, you know, income and needs and, you know, location and tax structure. Um, I mean, look, I think there's, there's a million model portfolios that are out there and, and I would, it would be a disservice for me to say this is the model portfolio that you know that you or anybody else should use in in the market. I look at, you know, when I think about building a portfolio, if I was going to you know teach somebody about building a portfolio, I would start with a global portfolio and work my way backwards, right? So, I think that the wrong approach for many people is you start with the S and P 500, and while that's a great approach, I don't think that it's probably the best. I think you probably need to have more of a global portfolio. So, you know, U.S. stocks, U.S. bonds, global stocks, global bonds, right? Like commodities, um, you know, cash, like you, you include those major components of a global, of a global financial system. And then from there you peel back or tilt 
based on your assumptions, your risk tolerance, uh, you know, where, what, you know, type of investing style or methodology you kind of subscribe to, you know, if you're more of a momentum or a value guy or a technical guy, whatever, that's where you kind of peel back. But I think you start with that base and then, and then build from there. Okay. And let's break that down. So let's go back and talk about you, what you're doing when you look at things like options, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. where you're focused mostly speak to your portfolio and how much does options make up of that portfolio? Yeah. Options makes up the vast majority of, of it for sure. And I would, I lump options as, as also like my cash position that is included in my airfinger quote options account, right. That I trade. Um, what ultimately ended up happening and you could say was interesting, but you know, at some point was also not that interesting, <laughs> you know, depending on how you look at it is when we looked at a lot of different ETFs and sectors and things to trade, including stocks. And we, we kind of all lumped it in and said, you know, okay, here's, the universe of things that we think are, you know, tradable that have high enough liquidity and deep markets, what could we possibly trade? Our core list of call it 10 to 15 tickers was pretty broad in scope. We have uh, TLT, which is, you know, 20 year maturity bonds. We have gold, we have emerging markets, we had utilities, we had retail, we had US markets, we had FXI, which is China, you know, we had EWZ, which is Brazil. So you actually look at that and you think to yourself, huh, that actually is basically a global portfolio of global assets, global bonds, global stocks, commodities, retail, utilities. I mean, it's really, you know, a lot of different sectors all kind of wrapped up. So my portfolio by default and by data structure and, you know, how we kind of, you know, worked, you know, analyzed the different components that we could possibly have ended up being a pretty diverse global portfolio of ETFs and and sectors and industries. From there, then we allocate roughly 30 to 40% on a rolling basis, it could slide and scale, you know, sometimes we're down to 10% allocation, sometimes we're higher at 40%. But somewhere around like a 30% allocation is allocated to those tickers on an ongoing basis, small, consistent trades and entries into those. The rest is, you know, stuck in cash and stays there for, you know, the purposes that we talked about earlier. Um, besides that, like my wife and I, we have real estate, you know, I invest in syndications. We have, you know, like businesses that we invest in and we partnership, you know, with people that we have, but those to me are kind of outside of the trading scope and don't make up as much as the trading side makes up. So I like them because they give us diversity and they give us all the other things that, that we would want in our portfolio, like as a couple and as a family, but I still wait, obviously the vast, vast majority towards the option side because it's much more scalable than everything else. Talk long-term strategy for option alpha from here, Kirk. What are the goals with this business? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I appreciate it. You know, the goal of option alpha has always been to really kind of change the, the conversation around options trading. Um, I think that options trading has always been looked at as, as this thing in the corner of the room that you people were kind of interested in, but they always were fearful of it. And so my goal with Option Alpha has always been to have people understand exactly what options trading is and specifically understand, you know, all of the good stuff that it includes with all of the risks that are associated with it and openly share, you know, both sides of it. I think we do a really good job of that because we give away a lot of our educate, all of our education and training and resources for free. And so we've had the privilege over the last, you know, five to 10 years of, becoming kind of an industry leader in education and training, which is great. The next iteration of Option Alpha is 
absolutely going to be towards the software and the data side, which which we haven't really dabbled in too much. We did release a backtesting tool a couple of years ago. We have some optimization tools and software tools. But eventually where this industry is going is it's going towards more of a rules-based data approach. This is where everyone eventually gets to. For whatever reason, the options industry has been stuck in this stale and stagnant mode mostly led by brokers who have control over the options industry and have control over the technology and have had no need to push the technology further and to improve the ability for traders to make either better decisions, more data-based decisions, more mathematical decisions. And so we feel like we're pushing the industry forward and we're going to make a pretty big splash with our auto trading technology and, and some of the other tools that we've, you know, software tools that we built because I feel like the options trading industry needs it. And um, and it's been backwards for 10 years. I mean, you look at the major, major platforms that are released and every time there's a major platform release, uh, you know, you can name a bunch of different brokers, nothing really changes except for the look and the colors and the feel and maybe the font, right? But no major technology has really helped, you know, has really helped traders the way that it should, you know, helping them actually make a smarter decision based on data or information or crowdsource technology, that hasn't really existed. Um, and so we hope to to really kind of push the industry forward and, and ultimately help people make better decisions with their trading. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and the direction of, of Options Alpha going forward. That's good information. I appreciate that. And Kirk, some of the audience would probably think of you as a successful options trader. Why offer options services when you can execute your trading privately? What would you say to the audience who may think that? Yeah, I mean, I've obviously learned a lot from people who are part of my circle now, a lot of people who I would consider friends. And there are way smarter traders that are involved in Option Alpha than me, Uh, way more profitable traders that are involved in Option Alpha than me. And I don't, I don't take anything away from them. Like I'm a very conservative, low volatility, steady eddy kind of guy. And that's how I trade. That's why I tell people like, you know, a lot of people are more profitable than me, but they might go through bigger drawdowns when they're wrong. And and I don't want to do that. So having option alpha has been a wonderful way for me to stay consistent and to learn from other people how they trade and start to incorporate those mechanics into my own trading. I think a lot of people who come to Option Alpha and really kind of dig in understand that the options community and the investing community at large, so like me and you and everybody else, you know, we're really here to kind of help each other. You know, this isn't like we're building competing businesses, you know, where we're I'm on one street corner and you're on one street corner and there's only so many people who go through, you know, that street and we're fighting over traffic and, and users. That's not what investing is. As far as I know, the Fed continues to print money. And so there will always be enough money for everybody. You know, they're not stopping printing money. So there's always going to be enough money for everyone. And I think we can really learn from one another if we are in a safe space where we can openly share ideas and feedback and criticism from one another. That's what I've learned at Option Alpha. I've had a lot of people that have criticized the way that I trade and, you know, rightly so, like choose, you know, like ask questions that are really deep and thoughtful and, you know, require me to give a serious answer or to think about my strategy maybe differently. And I think that makes us all better better investors if we have that type of environment. So anybody who's trading by themselves, I think it's stupid to do that, to, to be totally honest with you. There's a quote that I that somebody says, and, and I think it's really, really powerful. And it's this idea that like, 
learning by experience is really stupid because somebody else has already been there and done that. You should learn from other people and then incorporate that into your own experience. But just to go out and just to try to do something by yourself without leaning on the value that is a community and, a, and an industry together that has a lot of experience and a lot of ideas is really, really dumb. I think we have a time constraint related to that and how we can be able to maximize our time that's given to us. And I think that that ties in with experience and also learning from good sound people along the way, I think would, would help us speed up that time frame and improve the efficiency. I'm very much a fan of the idea that like no information is bad or good. It's just useful or not to you. You know, like I read something from somebody and I, if, if I don't agree with it, that doesn't mean that they're totally wrong. It's just, well, I don't agree with that. I have a different opinion or I have a different view or I have a different you know, outcome that I'm looking to, you know, accomplish. So, you know, I think the more ideas and the more eyeballs you can get on something, the better. Well, wrapping up here, tell us about the services at Option Alpha. What services are you offering, Kirk, and how can people sign up and what can they expect as far as costs? Right now, like I said, everything that we do on the training and education side is free. That will never change. You know, we're really kind of a very strong-willed company in the sense that we're going to always lead by education and I tell people openly, like, come in and use and abuse our education services as much or as little as you want. There's no time limits. There's no constraints. You you come in and you take whatever you want. You can go download, review, and and it's all yours. You know, knock your socks off. Just you know, give us credit if you if you do anything with it or you know, share it with people. When it comes to services, I mean, really, in the next month and a half, we're going to be basically transitioning into more of the the software based service and based around our options trading platform uh, for automated trading. And we expect that that price point will be uh, on a sliding scale between somewhere around $20 to you know $300, depending on how much automation and how many portfolios you want to run. But that will be you know kind of the main model that we'll be going towards very quickly in the next couple of weeks. And, and that model I think is, is a good model because it aligns our interests with the interests of somebody who wants to come in and try and trade you know, there'll definitely be a level that's reasonable, you know, 20 bucks, under 20 bucks uh, a month to start trading an automated strategy and start learning and start back testing strategies and using our research. And then somebody who's a little bit more advanced and wants to run 35 different bots and 400 different automations on crazy schedules, you know, that's probably going to be a higher price point because it costs us more to run those servers and maintain that, that functionality. Um, but that's where we're going towards is a very simple, very streamlined model of uh, trying to get people as much, as many software tools as possible for a reasonable, well-valued price. And how can the audience reach out to you and the Option Alpha team to learn more? Just go to optionalpha.com and you can always click the contact form and that goes to our team and myself. Okay, well, Mr. Duplessis, I appreciate you taking the time uh, with us today and we really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck and uh, take care. Thank you, I appreciate being here.